Good morning. If you have a copy of God's Word handy, would you be turning to Joshua chapter 7? Whether it be a pew Bible or a phone or a tablet or the good old-fashioned bound pieces of paper with ink on them, would you be looking at Joshua chapter 7? And we'll begin there in just a moment. I hate to take time away and, and give announcements, but it usually is helpful sometimes that I take just a moment to share a few things with you. Uh, we did have our men's meeting yesterday morning. It went very well. We had about um, 22 or so men who were here to be a part of that. Some of you are, know that as needs to be said because this is commonly the place over the years where we have had a sermon talking about some of the things that the men discussed. <clears throat> Excuse me, we've talked about numbers and, and the statistics that we shared. We've talked about the mission work that we're a part of. Uh, because of the series that we're in, I didn't plan to do that this morning. We may come back and look at those things. But as always, our elders said yesterday and will always say that their door is always open. If you have any questions or want to know anything that was shared yesterday, you're welcome to, to see them individually or try to meet with them as a group. I do believe that out in the, ta on the, in the foyer on one of the tables there is uh, some packets of information. If you would like to take one of those, we had some extras. Uh, some of them, one of those is the budget or actually I guess just the, the ledger for last year that talk, talks about uh, uh, the, everything that was spent and our money, that, how it was handled here by the elders. There's some other information that Brian had about um, our audiovisual technology. I had some about our attendance, but we can certainly make you aware of that if you'd be interested in those things. But I don't, don't plan to speak about that uh, this morning. <clears throat> One thing I did want to say uh, was that we also discussed yesterday the, the audiovisual plan that, that we're going through here. Brian and Travis and, and Charles and many are trying to constantly work on things. Uh, one of the things they did recently was look at the bulbs and the projectors, try to change those, but it's still a little dark. I don't know if you've noticed in here, but we have painted. Uh, we have changed the lights back here. We have uh, kind of adjusted the lights up here. And so we're kind of still trying to get all that flowing correctly and looking good. I share that with you because I'm at home, usually on Friday or Thursday, putting together my PowerPoint. And sometimes what looks great on my computer screen doesn't always show up as well here. And I apologize for that. But we're always trying to work and make it the best we can be, the best for you as you're sitting and trying to see the songs and that kind of thing. We appreciate those guys and the work that they do. It's also the first day of spring. These aren't exactly the spring flowers that are out, but we're working on getting uh, some new uh, flowers to put up here as we think about the change of the seasons, but we're just grateful for all who have a part in, in what we do here, uh, involved with our worship and, and everything, really. Uh, if you have your bulletin in front of you, uh, there's a typo in your bulletin. It's not faith's fault, but uh, if you have your notes, if you're looking on the side that has the notes, the outlines for the day, uh, if you look up closer to the top, there's a typo. It says, if you read it very quickly, it says it won't be a very long sermon. Uh, that's a typo, okay? That's not going to be the case. I don't promise that. Don thinks he's funny by leading it won't be very long right before the lesson, uh, but that's not going to be the case. We're going to do our best to get through this, um, but that may be, turn out to be a bit of a typo, and that's not Faith's fault either there, so... Could have led after the midnight. Yes, that's always a good one, too. Yeah. The battle between song leaders and preachers continues on. Uh, <clears throat> or ready to suffer. Okay, they're all coming out now. Here we go. Let's just say, you know, uh, yeah, here we go. <laughs> in, uh, in Romans chapter 15 and verse number 4, if you're familiar with that passage, the Bible tells us, Paul would tell those in Rome, that whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. See, as preachers, we often quote that because it reminds us that what we're going to talk about this morning is important. Paul is sort of making reference to the fact that all the things that had come up until that point when he is speaking and writing there is important. 
You know, we don't live by the Old Testament, and people sometimes get that confused. They, they, I mean, most people don't, to be honest. Many people don't, uh, but some maybe do. But, but then people say, well, why don't you do things this way? Or what do you do when God said in the Old Testament these words, but you're not practicing those things? And so there's a deeper discussion to have there. But it's also interesting to note that those things are for our learning. We can take advantage of those old-time stories and accounts and things that were written so that we can learn something. I say that because I've told you that for the last few weeks now, and God be willing next week that we're assembled together, we've been talking about the book of Joshua. And one reason that we've done that is for our young people up here who took their Bible Bowl test last Sunday, and they're still learning and getting ready to compete in the convention, the, uh, the competition that takes place there. They'll be in a room with several hundred uh, other young people, and they'll compete with about 50 to 70 questions or so that they'll get asked to try to remember and recall what they've studied over the book of Joshua. And so this is beneficial to them uh, because they have been studying these things. In fact, last Sunday they took the test, and I, I took a, pictures of the computer screen where they were taking it to look at the questions that they were asked. And at least probably four or five of the first 20 questions were things that I had said last Sunday morning pertaining uh, to the crossing of the Jordan and the memorial stones. And so they had heard it then, and then they went and took that test. Now there were a hundred more questions uh, that they needed to know, or 95 more or so. But it's encouraging to them. But that's not the only thing. I mean, Paul says what takes place in Joshua is important to us. We can learn something from it. And so last week, as we left off, the children of Israel had crossed the Jordan. Now, I took a sort of a zoomed out picture here of just Google Maps, but you see the Sea of Galilee kind of at the top, if you can make that out, the Dead Sea at the bottom, and the Jordan River flows between those two bodies of water. If you can make it out, you see at the bottom a little white triangle on the right and some stars on the left. And that is where we believe or kind of assume that they might have crossed the Jordan. That's what we looked at last Sunday morning. And then they set up camp on the other side of the Jordan at a place that is called Gilgal. Here it is zoomed in a little bit more. That's the Dead Sea. And you can see if you can make it out some zigzag lines there that is the River Jordan. They cross over. And the big star at the bottom would be where the Battle of Jericho took place. These are certainly approximations, but you can see where they would have been at this time. And for the sake of time and prior knowledge this morning, we're going to skip over as we've been working through Joshua chapter 6. We're going to skip over the Battle of Jericho. It's important, and there are lots of lessons that you can learn. But I'm going to say that most of us here have heard it from the time that we were very, very small. You know that the children of Israel march on Jericho. They don't overpower it with battle, with with swords and that kind of thing at first, but they do the marching around the walls. They follow exactly what God has said, and then the walls, as we say, come tumbling down, and they're able to take this great city. And so as we think about here, they have moved across the Jordan, and they're now at Jericho. They are victorious. They're victorious. They have conquered. They've kept their promise to Rahab and her family. And chapter 6 concludes with the fact that the Lord was with Joshua, verse 27. And Joshua's fame spread throughout all the country. Yet you look at chapter 7 and verse number 1 and you see that ominous word, B-U-T. God was with Joshua. His fame has spread But, there's always a but, and that means something else is coming. 
You know, when we first read of Ai, if you have your bulletin in front of you, you've seen the title for this morning, the three acts of Ai, acts as in sort of, and we think about plays and that kind of thing, different situations or different settings. When we first read of Ai, it's actually in Genesis chapter 12 and verse number 8. We talked about that a few weeks ago when we talked about setting the stage for Joshua because that is where Abram is going to receive the promises from God. And after those promises that we talked about two weeks ago, Abram, who's going to become Abraham, of course, but Abram moved from Shechem in Canaan, the land of Canaan, on the west side of the Jordan River to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And it's there that he built an altar. So you see, we first meet Ai all the way back in chapter 12 and verse number 8. Now, before I change maps, let me show you again here. Jericho being the bottom star, the other two stars are Ai, which is the one, the second one, the middle one, I guess I would say, and Bethel, then on the far left. We're going to come back to those because it's important to this story about Ai. They're very close together. Some say maybe even just two or three miles apart. Again, that's approximately where they would have kind of have been. But they're going to be at Jericho, and then they're going to then think about the city of Ai. Now, this is a little bit more of a, a zoomed-out map, and I know it's hard to see, but there's a black box in the middle. And why this is important and why I kind of wanted to at least give you an idea there. You see the Sea of Galilee, you see the Dead Sea, and the Jordan River running between, between them. This is important because as the children of Israel have crossed the Jordan River, they've moved into this black box territory, which is sort of central land of Canaan. And if you move the rest of the way through the book of Joshua, which we obviously won't have time to do, they're going to first go south down to the Jebusites, the Perizzites, and the Hittites and conquer south. Then they're going to come back and go north. And as they go north, they're going to then conquer the northern part of the country. But, but fresh on the heels of victory at Jericho, and the victory at Jericho fresh on the heels of them crossing the Jordan River, this miraculous thing that we talked about last Sunday morning, verse 2 of chapter 7 tells us that Joshua sends spies to Ai. Now, if you're familiar, this is the third time that we've kind of talked about spies here. We've talked about the fact that they were sent. Joshua was one of the 12 spies. Then number two, Joshua sent spies as we thought about Rahab. And we thought about those men going and spying out Jericho. Now, thirdly, Joshua sends spies over to Ai. Chapter 7, verse number 2. Look at verse 2. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Avon, on to the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. So the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, but they fled before the men of Ai. And even, verse number 5, And the men of Ai struck down about 36 men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Shebarim, and struck them down on the descent. Therefore the hearts of the people melted and became like water. So to set the stage, Joshua sends these spies. Spies come back and say, hey, nothing to worry about here. Don't worry about it. Remember we talked last week, remember when we did the math and we said there were millions of people in the children of Israel? We took that original number and multiplied it out, 600,000 fighting men. 
They could have sent 600,000, but the spies and Joshua agree to only send 3,000. And what happens? But they are defeated. That's the first act that we want to talk about in the three acts of Ai. Number one, defeat. We've already read what happens there as they send the 3,000 men up in verse number four. Then they turn and they flee and they lose 36 men. What a turn of events. Notice verse number five here records the very same words from Joshua chapter two, verses nine and verse, verse nine and verse 11. When the spies show up to the house of Rahab, Rahab tells them that the people of Jericho were faint hearted and that their hearts melted as they heard of what Jehovah God was doing. Essentially, she tells these two spies, Jericho is shaking in their boots. Because they're terrified of what they've heard of Joshua and the children of Israel. They're faint-hearted and their hearts melt like water. But what does it say in verse number 5? They melt. The hearts of the people melted and became like water. But now that same great God of heaven who terrified the people of Jericho, his people, his people are afraid and terrified. We can be sure that it is a rare occasion, but from this first act, we would also notice that this is the only loss of life in the book of Joshua. That's what that's supposed to mean there in parentheses. But in fact, in the book of Joshua, this is the only time that we see a loss of life in battle or soldiers killed during a conflict, and it is a big deal. Everyone is afraid of the children of Israel, but yet here they are and now they're afraid. Even though they've witnessed the fall of Jericho, even though they've witnessed the dry ground in the Jordan River. So much so that this is a big deal that we read there in chapter 7, verses 6 through 9 of what Joshua is doing. This is a great leader of Israel whom God is with who was told to be strong and courageous, and yet we see here that he is tearing his clothes. He's putting dust on his head. He's falling before the ark of the Lord on his face until evening. And he's even foolish enough to suggest, again, verses 6 through 9 there, as Israel had complained many times before, that it would have been better to have stayed away. He's praying to God and saying, God, it would have been better if we'd stayed on the east side of the Jordan than have come over here and been embarrassed and to be defeated and to be scared. Unbelievable. Unbelievable that a man of God who has just witnessed these great things is now on his face in tears and in dust before God. Which leads us, though, then to our second act of the, book of, or the story of Ai here. Before Joshua had sent those 3,000 men into battle, Israel had been sabotaged. They had. There had been deception. And as Joshua and the leaders are in such a fearful state in verse number 11, God says very plainly, Israel has sinned. And they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. You see, Joshua was actually a little different here. I said a moment ago that he's complaining as the children of Israel had done for many years in the wilderness and coming out of Egypt. But Joshua was a little different from those times because their complaining was of unbelief. 
You see, they didn't believe in God. They didn't trust in him as they came out of Egypt and they began to wander in the wilderness. Joshua believes, but Joshua complains to God in prayer, but he doesn't complain about God. He doesn't say it's God's fault and that God can't do wondrous things, but he is complaining to God. And at this very low moment, Joshua, think about it because we're going to go backwards here for just a second, but in this very low moment, Joshua does not know why they have been defeated. He's questioning what's going on. But verse 11 continues, though, to tell us that Israel had both stolen and deceived. Sin not only occurred among the people, but it also remained. And if we pause here, we need to go back to chapter 6, verses 18 and 19, to see what they were told to do. Before the destruction of Jericho, God has given instructions, and Joshua is telling them, verse 18, "...by all means abstain from the accursed things." lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. Verse 19, But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. This is what the people were told to do in Jericho. Before the walls come tumbling down, they are told, or they're told of what to do. They are to destroy the city. But of many of these accursed things that are described to them, they're not to keep them, but they're to be consecrated to the Lord. And even before this account in chapter 7, beginning in verse 2, where we began reading about what happens in act number 1, as we're calling it this morning, in verse number 1 of chapter 7, we read, we read, the readers read much later, we're told that it is Achan. It's Achan. Achan who had done this thing. Even though Joshua and the people don't know until much later after they've been defeated. But we're told in chapter 7 in verse 1 that it is Achan. So God tells Joshua in verse number 13 of chapter 7 to sanctify the people. They needed to remove the accursed thing. And so the people are to be brought before Joshua. If you look down in verse 14 and kind of read there through chapter 7, they're to be brought through excuse me, brought to Joshua by tribe, then by family, then by household. And verse 14 finally says, man by man. We're going to get to the bottom of this, whatever it takes. So before Joshua, moving on from verse 14, is brought the tribe of Judah. After the tribe of Judah, whoa, hold on just a second. Now let's bring the family. The family of the Zarhites. We're narrowing down here. Next, the household of Zabdi. And in the end, it is Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, who was taken before Joshua. And it's not exactly a harsh interrogation, but but under questioning or, or interrogation here, he tells exactly what happened. And if you like to mark in your Bible, here's a great spot. Beginning in verse number 21. Three words to underline. Number one, he says, I saw. What happened with Achan? Number one, he saw. But then you come down to the middle of verse number two. He says, I coveted. And then number three, he says, I took. You see, the story of Achan is really not that hard. 
it's really not that hard for us even today in 2022. He saw, he coveted, he took. You see, it's really very simple. Why had Israel fallen? Sin. I mean, we can make this big story. We can go through all of it as we're doing right now. But it always boils down to sin. It just does. Very often in our lives, sometimes things happen that are not our fault. Things occur among our family that cause us problems that we didn't do. But sometimes, sometimes, many people shake their fist at God and they ask him why and they wonder. But the very problem is sin. It may be addiction, it may be substance abuse, it may be sexual sin, it, may, it could be anything, but it is simply sin. And in this case, Israel had fallen because of sin. That's the exact reason that they were not able to stand against the small people. Uh, we're going to see in a minute the number is 12,000. 12,000 people versus 2.5 million or so. Why were they defeated? Because of sin. And I know you see the parallels for us today. You see, this is a great place where many preachers usually talk about covetousness. That was Achan's problem. And that's a good lesson for us. But we simply notice that he saw, he coveted, and he took. For us, in our sinful ways, our eyes see things we shouldn't see. We covet things that are not ours, and then we fall into sin. Achan had taken the spoils. He had taken the accursed things, and we see there through the rest of chapter 7 that he had buried them underneath his tent. See, the lesson is sin always has consequences. We've discussed this before, but people wonder why bad things happen to people sometimes. Well, sometimes it's not that God is evil or delights in our suffering, but our suffering is brought on by sin. I usually like to give the example of the tragic situation of drunk driving. Most often it is a family that is killed or young people that are killed that had nothing to do with the situation. They're simply driving on the road, but because of someone's sin, then people lose their lives. So what had to happen to Achan was that he had to be punished. And we read about that punishment in chapter 7, verses 24 through 26. And... His family, all of his things are taken in verse 24. They're brought to the valley of Achor. And Joshua says, why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. Consequences. Tragic. Some people would say harsh, but consequences because of sin and it was then after the removal of the sin that the Lord turned it says verse 26 the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger and he was once again with Israel now I want you to, to kind of put a mental pen there for just a moment because we're going to come back to this particular section in just a second but first let's talk about the third act you see the first act is the children of Israel are defeated they walk in all big and bad. We don't need to send everybody, just a few, and yet they lose soldiers. They're defeated. They turn and they flee. Number two, they realize that there is deception among them. It is Achan's fault. They bring Achan and his family and his things, and they stone them and burn them to remove this evil. And then the third act is deliverance. The third act is going to be deliverance. For the sake of time, we can't go verse by verse here, but chapter 7 
where we began just a moment ago, chapter 7 began with that word, but, right? Fresh off of victory, but Achan had done these things. Now, chapter 8 begins with now. And that great phrase again, from God to Joshua, do not be afraid. Remember when I said that what sort of things were written aforetime were written for our learning? I said it, but it's the words of Paul, of course. Do you realize that we can even go back to the Old Testament to see that we can be forgiven? That if we change our lives, we may have to suffer consequences, but we can come back to God? That's a New Testament principle, right? We're all living examples. Have you messed up? I've messed up. And yet here we are, we have a chance to still be faithful. But even Joshua, and it wasn't Joshua's fault, but even the children of Israel, after they had sinned, now have a chance to be right with God and be told, do not be afraid. Joshua sends men there in chapter 8. And again, I'm not going to be able to give you every verse. This may be good homework for you to go home and read chapter 8. But Joshua sends men, a contingent of men, to the backside of Ai to set an ambush. All right, to set an ambush. He takes some men, and remember those two stars over there? He kind of places them between Bethel and Ai on the backside. He and the people go to the north side. Those folks are on the back side. He and the people go to the north side. While they're there, the people of Ai come out. The king of Ai and the people of Ai come out of the, of the, towards the north. They're going to meet Joshua and the children of Israel on the battlefield. And in fact, verse 17 says that as Joshua and the people turn and flee. You see, they're not really in a fight yet. I mean, they're not under duress. They just turn around and run away like they're frightened. Verse 17 says that there was not a man left in Ai. And you even get the humorous idea that they left the door standing wide open too. The gate's wide open. The city's wide open. There's not a man left. They chase them because they're running. And when there's not a man left in Ai, that ambush comes in from the backside and sets the city on fire. Joshua stretches out his spear in verse, uh, verse 18. He stretches out his spear and the ambush begins. They burn the city. Verse 25 says that there was more death, but it wasn't the people of Israel this time. No, no, not those 36 deaths among Israel. There is more death, but there was 12,000 people that died that day, and they were all of Ai. But once again, let's ask the question. We said a minute ago, why did Israel fall? Because of their sin. So let's ask the question here. Why did Israel have success? Because God delivered them. Because they obeyed. And even going back to chapter 8 and verse number 7. Chapter 8, verse number 7. It was God who delivered them. It's not the 600,000 people fighting men it's not their military might or that they have the most armor or anything like that it is God who delivers them verse 18 where Joshua stretches out his spear God tells him to do it and God says I will give you this city it's God they have deliverance but it is because of God this time in verse number 27 the Bible tells us that they can take the spoils of battle, and they do. And as they are victorious, at the end of chapter 8, Joshua builds an altar to God at Mount Ebal, and he writes a copy of the law of Moses on the stones. 
And in verse 34, it tells us that he reads all the words of the law, both the blessings, the good stuff we like to hear, and the cursings. And the people are blessed because they have obeyed the voice of the Lord. That's the three acts of Ai. But one other thing I think that we can take this morning from this lesson, if you go back to the end of chapter 7, when Achan and his family are killed, I think there are several lessons we can learn, but there is one very interesting one in regards to the tragedy of his sin and his punishment. But as you look there at the end of chapter 7, I'm going to ask you to also go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You see, as we've said, we do live by the new law, the new covenant. And so Paul, speaking in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 9, gives us a similar instruction as the children of Israel had in Joshua chapter 7. As you turn your Bibles there to 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 9, Paul is discussing sexual immorality. He's discussing sexual immorality that is going on among the church at Corinth, among Christians. And he's discussing it, and he's telling them what they need to do in order to take care of that. They are to handle it, according to verse 5, strong words alert, okay? Strong words here. Verse 5, they are to handle it by delivering such a person to Satan. Strong words. Wow, deliver a person to Satan? Does that not sound countercultural to the world? more grace and love and just accept people as they are. Paul says if a person's caught up in sin, you are to deliver them to Satan. But a real quick note here. Number one, we see from this point that judging is not only possible, but necessary. They could assemble together as the church and say with conviction, this person is wrong and we need to do something to help them. They were to deliver this person to Satan. Now, that's not capital punishment or physical death, but it's the idea of putting someone away. Paul would write of a similar situation in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse number 6, that they were to withdraw from every brother, every Christian who walks disorderly. The idea of being delivered unto Satan is that the sinning person would not get mad get their feelings hurt and leave the church but that the sinning person would destroy their fleshly urges they would destroy their sin and they would become faithful and pure once again but why is that why would God tell us to do such a thing you see this is one of those places I think that people will point at the Bible and say boy it must not be true or boy this God that you serve he's awful why would he tell Christians to deliver a brother or sister to Satan why can't we just love them and be kind to them? Why can't we just overlook what they are doing? And here is where Achan comes in. Paul says in verse number 7, it's because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. When we just look the other way at sin or allow people who are willfully sinning to continue to do that brazenly and openly, then we are always at risk for the entire church to become affected. And that's just a fact. We love everybody. We want to extend grace because goodness knows I want grace back from people. 
But at the same time, Scripture is clear that at some point we have to judge and say that someone is in such sin, caught up in such awful things that they have to be withdrawn from or removed from us so that the, we can protect the church because a little leaven can leaven the whole lump. You see, God's people under the new covenant, and that's who we are, by the way. We're Christians living under the new covenant. That's us. We are to take the drastic action of removing sin from among us. Does Achan's punishment sound harsh? Does Achan's punishment sound harsh? Well, yeah, I could say that. That sounds very harsh. Him, his family, all those things stoned and burned. Yeah, that sounds harsh. But while we are not going to stone someone today as Christians, we still need to remove the sin and even sometimes possibly withhold fellowship from someone who is being rebellious to God. Is it hard? Is it difficult? Does it usually cause more problems? Yet yeah, does. But we understand not only from this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, but also from the story of Achan in Joshua chapter 7, and many other places that we don't have time to go to in this moment, we understand how important it is to get rid of the sin in the camp. The three acts of Ai, they're pretty important. And it's a great reminder of how we're not promised that things are going to be perfect. You see, it doesn't exactly read there in Joshua chapter 6 and 7 that the children of Israel were just boastful proud it doesn't exactly read that way but you have to imagine that they go from top of the world victorious to the bottom of the barrel destroyed with people who are dead and wondering what's going to happen they find the sin they remove it from the camp and in the third act they are once again delivered by the hand of God and victorious in battle we can learn a lot from the three acts of AI we can learn things that we can apply to our lives we can see that we have to remove sin from our lives. You see, sometimes what we just said is we've got to do it as a church, as a congregation. But, of course, that's not necessarily needed if you and I all begin with taking care of ourselves. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a child of God. We'll be singing this song in just a moment to encourage you that through its words, we might encourage you to become a Christian, to become a part of this family, this body. It's wonderful. It's great. You see, nobody likes to talk about withdrawing fellowship and, and trying to help people who are in sin. When we're all doing what's right, it's the, it's the best thing here, to be a part of the family of God. And we want you to be a part of the family of God, even this day. And if you need to become a Christian this morning, we'll be singing to encourage you. Maybe you're here and you've done that, but maybe it's sin in your life. It may not be of a public nature that everybody knows about it, but it's something that you'd like to make known in front of the congregation. One of our elders will be coming forward in just a moment to pray with you and encourage you as well. We relish this opportunity, not because we like to nitpick and point out everybody's problems, but because we want to encourage one another. And there's not a group anymore that's assembled here right this moment that wants to see everyone in heaven together. And so we need to do what's right. And if you're here this morning, you're not a child of God, or maybe you need to come back to him by repenting of your sin and praying for forgiveness, we would love to assist you, even now as we stand together and as we sing. Good afternoon. We will forego the exercise. We won't make anybody do anything like that. Uh, but I'll ask instead that if you have your Bible, you'll be turning to the book of Joshua. And I'm going to ask you to turn to chapter 12 first this afternoon. Joshua chapter 12. 
Uh, I did tell several of you, though, that, that last Sunday was the, fir- the first taste of my own medicine uh, when Jeff was here, that I had to sit through the service, too, with a full stomach and, and a warm auditorium, and so I, I got a little taste of it. So it makes me a little more uh, you know, able to bear there with you and that I understand uh, how hard it can be, but uh, appreciate your uh, attention, appreciate you being here and the chance to stay together. As we said, it's great to see Bill and Sylvia. Several others we didn't get to mention this morning, Miss Pat uh, Blankenship, that we had just asked on Wednesday night. You pray for but she was feeling better today that she could be back with us and and many others we're just thankful to see you and the chance to encourage ourselves not only in the study although that's certainly very important uh, but also in our time of fellowship um, and that we'll have hopefully here in just a few moments today we're going to have a or this afternoon a a two-part lesson I ask you to turn to chapter 12 of the book of Joshua uh, because you'll notice something that I shared with you, I guess it was a couple of Sundays ago when we had some of the Bible Bowl questions on the screen and that kind of thing. Um, but you'll notice in chapter 12 that it's one of those chapters where it gets a little difficult to read. For those of you who have uh, do the daily Bible reading or go through the Bible in a year maybe, this is not the worst by any means you're probably aware of. But you come to chapter 12 and you begin to see a list of the kings. If you're like me or have a Bible like mine, it's the, the typesetting is off a little bit and so it looks very similar and you know then what's coming, right? You're like, oh, here we go. Uh, it's just not necessarily a lot of spiritual value. Uh, When we think about that, nutritional value in that way, sometimes it's just a list of things. Let me ask you to turn over to Joshua chapter 15. Look over at Joshua chapter 15, in particular the middle and the end, and you'll see again a list of cities. And it makes you say, well, you know what, that's, that's just kind of hard to read through. What, what good is that? And we have even shared with our young people that as they've studied this particular chapters for the Bible Bowl, uh, it may have been, yes, I think it was chapter 15. The folks who put together the Bible Bowl material that are all part of the Lads to Leaders program do a wonderful job. We appreciate their work. Uh, like I mentioned to you, it's about 600 questions overall from the whole book. But in chapter 15, there are 63 verses. If you have your Bible and you're looking there, 63 verses. And I think our kids were given a total of three questions from that chapter out of 63 verses. And if you're looking at it, you see why. Because it's going to be hard to memorize all of those cities, uh, all those names of those cities. But I also want to encourage you that while it may not be as spiritual, uh, of such spiritual value as we even talked about this morning, there can be some value there. In fact, I wanted to share, if you can make it out on the screen, and as you see again, the guys are continuing to kind of work on our, the lights that we have. We may be adding some or taking away. We're still kind of trying to sort all of it out. They were working on the brightness uh, of the projectors before lunch, right after our service. So, But if you can see, this is a screenshot from PTP 365, uh, and it's been a benefit to me in particular. This was what they call PTP Spark. It's sort of like a, a two- or three-day event, which is kind of like a mini, a, a smaller version of PTP, and they have them all over the country. They had one at the West Huntsville Congregation not long ago. This one... <clears throat> excuse me, was in St. Louis, Missouri in September of 2021, so not that long ago. But because they did it, folks could go there and be a part of that. They videoed almost all the lessons. Uh, There's a drop-down menu over on the left-hand side above. That's Cliff Goodwin. I don't know if you can make him out there. Uh, That's Cliff Goodwin. It says auditorium sessions, and then you drop down, and it says women's sessions, and then you drop down again, and it says uh, like a, a breakout session. So they had some classes that were, say, like in our fellowship hall. They had ladies' classes that were in another location, and they had some of these auditorium sessions. 
Uh, I don't think it says that I can see here, but there's probably close to 30 to 40 videos just about, and that's about the book of Joshua. That's actually what they covered there in St. Louis, Missouri on those dates there uh, of PTP Spark. But here in the bottom, not the right-hand corner, but the next one over, the title of the lesson, and that one's by Cliff Goodwin as well, A Piece of the Pie, Lessons from Land Allotment in Joshua chapter 12. So I don't want to mislead you and say that it's absolutely pointless, you don't need to read it, you just need to skip over it, because he was uh, given the title of looking at chapter 12 in particular that we began with and making, you know, uh, he went 42 minutes, a 42-minute lesson out of it, that there are some things we can gain from that. All of that being said, there is still no doubt that the first 10 chapters of the book of Joshua give us some of those stories, give us some of the things that we've looked at so far that are encouraging. There's Rahab. There is uh, the crossing of the Jordan and the memorial stones we looked at last Sunday morning. There's what we talked about, well, we skipped over Jericho, but there's what we talked about with Ai. And what I'd like for us to do this afternoon is continue with chapters 9 and 10. So to back up a little bit further, (coughs) pardon me, from where you may have been looking at, chapters 9 and 10. There's some good stories there as well that we want to look at. So this is a bit of a two-part lesson. If you have your outline in front of you, you'll see there are kind of two titles there together. And the first miniature lesson, we might say, is entitled Tricks and Treaties, and it's found in Joshua chapter 9. Now, this is kind of a similar map like I had this morning, and one reason I wanted to use, use it was to show you there are two circles in the middle. They're supposed to be black, if you can see that, but that is, again, kind of where they came across and fought the Battle of Jericho and then went to Ai and Bethel. That is kind of the middle of the land of Canaan, and what they're going to do is conquer that. They've done Jericho which is in the first circle, the right-hand one. Bethel and Ai are kind of in the second one on the left-hand side. Then they're going to go south, then they're going to go north. In fact, if you have a Bible like mine that has headings, in chapter 10, in verse 28, mine says, Conquest of the Southland, and chapter 11 says the Northern Conquest. So that's where you're going to find that they finished in the central part, went south, and then went north. Well, chapter 9 begins as they have defeated Ai, like we've already mentioned in our lesson this morning, and they're going to begin conquering the remaining portion of the land. By the way, this did not happen overnight. It's very easy for us because you can read two pages in about, what, five minutes, definitely less than ten minutes. They think, oh, they conquered Ai, and then they just moved on and conquered the Southland. No, there are several passages where it mentions that it was, it was a long time before they finally finished conquering the land. But by God's majestic power, by God's power and his deliverance, he gave Israel the land one piece at a time. And Israel's approach was to do, as I've already pointed out to you, kind of in three stages, the central, which was Jericho, Ai, and Gibeon. We're going to talk about Gibeon right now. The southern part, secondly, and then the northern part. Beginning in chapter 9, the title of this part of the lesson is entitled Tricks and Treaties because the Gibeonite people come to them. You notice in chapter 1 that it came to, or excuse me, verse 1, chapter 9, it came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan, that's the west side, All these kings, and it begins to list the people, heard about it. Step number one, they hear. They hear about Joshua just as the people of Ai had, just as the people of Jericho had. And number two, then in verse number two, they gather together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. 
You know, it's funny, isn't it? There's not much that unites us sometimes except to have a common opponent, you know? If there were to be someone that tried to go to war with the United States, you might find that that's the one thing that get Republican and Democrats to work together, right? Sometimes is we find a common opponent, all of a sudden we're going we're gonna to work together. These people maybe didn't get along. They were enemies, but when they got Joshua on the other side, all of a sudden they're going to work together with one accord. But notice verse 3. But, there's our word again, but when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, here comes the trick part, verse 4, they worked craftily. I have the new King James in front of me. Craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. And they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet, and old garments on themselves, and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. Verse 6 says, And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal, and said to him, and, excuse me, and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country, now therefore make a covenant with us. If you have your outline, we'll notice here that what it is is that these fearful Gibeonites seek a treaty with Joshua and the children of Israel for protection. After Israel has defeated Ai, some of the kings of Canaan join together to oppose them. However, Gibeon says, you know what? I've heard enough. (laughs) I don't think we want to go to battle. Instead, let's try to trick them and make a treaty. And so the Gibeonites deceive Israel into making a peace treaty with them. You may have to flip over a page or so in your Bible, but you'll see there in verse number 11 that what they do, what they say when they show up with all these old things are that their elders told them to take their provisions and to go meet with the children of Israel and with Joshua. And their trick is that they have traveled so far that when they left their homeland, they had brand new clothes and brand new sandals, new wineskins, fresh bread hot out of the oven and now here we are and we've come so far it's gotten moldy and we've ripped our clothes and our sandals are old and our old wineskins and all these things but as we read in verse 4 that is simply not true if you can if I can try to describe for you here again the second or the circle on the left hand side Gibeon is right in the middle now you get no argument from me that we know going by donkey or by foot is going to take a while, right? It's, it's pretty close on the map, but it's going to take a while. But Gibeon is in that circle on the left, and Gilgal is in the circle on the right. Gilgal would have been kind of the base camp for a good portion of this for Joshua. As they cross the Jordan, they camp at Gilgal, and it's kind of home base. So we're not talking about like years worth of journeys here or that kind of thing, but they basically take a short trip and pretend that it was a long trip. Why is that? Well, it's because they're afraid. We've already read about everybody says, we've heard about you, Joshua. We know what you're up to. But if you have your Bible open there, look at chapter 9, verse 24. As Joshua and the people enter into this treaty, by the way, they go ahead and go through with it and say, yes, we'll, we'll enter this treaty. Then they realize they've been tricked. They're going to live up to their word. But as they kind of call them to the carpet, verse 24 says, so the people answered Joshua, that's the Gibeonites, and said, Because your servants were clearly told that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you, therefore we were very much afraid. 
We were very much afraid for our lives because of you and have done this thing. See, call to the carpet, they say, oh, that's exactly what we did. We tricked you because we were scared. We knew what God, uh, the God of heaven had told Moses, had told you what you had already done. And our best bet was to try to strike a treaty with you. You go back there in chapter 9 a little bit, uh, about verse 14 is a very um, interesting verse. It says, then the men of Israel took some of their provisions. I don't know if that means they ate the moldy bread. I don't know why anybody would have done that, but they may have taken some of the provisions. But notice verse 14, they did not ask counsel of the Lord. And verse 15 tells us that Joshua made peace with them, made a covenant with them to let them live, and the rulers of the congregation swore to them. This is another one of those stories that's kind of interesting. If you remember when we covered Exodus uh, back in 2019 for the Bible Bowl and for Lads to Leaders, we had a, a lesson one Sunday night as we did this kind of review that kind of told some of the somewhat humorous stories. I mean, we don't mean to be irreverent. I mean, mean to like make light in any way of what God has said, but some things that sound interesting to us. This is one of those because the key to this deception was old items and moldy bread. And as I said there in verse 14, it says they took some of the provisions uh, and then they made this deal with them. The Gibeonites had heard about God's mighty wonders and his acts. And notice, uh, let's see, all the way back to verse number 9, when Joshua inquires of them who they are, where they've come from, and they begin to spout off about all that God had done, look at the end of verse 9, they even go back to Egypt, right? It's not just Ai, it's not just Jericho, it's not just even the, uh, the Jordan River. All the way back to Egypt, they knew what he had done and had how the Israelites had overcome the Amorites east of the Jordan. And they were aware of God's command to completely wipe out the Canaanites on the west side of the river Jordan. And so when Joshua and the Israelite people are aware of what has happened, they are rightfully upset. However, verses 17 through 22 points out that they are going to keep their oath and they're not going to harm the people of Gibeon. Now, I didn't put it in your notes, uh, worried about room maybe there in the outline in your bulletin, but what was Israel's failure? Why was this a big deal? You know, why, why do they have this problem? And it's, we've already touched on it, but it's said in verse 14, because they did not seek counsel of the Lord. They did what they deemed to be best. And it caused them to fail to do what God had told them to do. In fact, when we go back and look at God's instructions to the children of Israel, it was to completely wipe out the land and to make no covenants. You know, completely take over the land. And yet here they are. They've made a covenant with some Canaanite people, these Gibeonites. And the other interesting thing that's kind of important about this story that you may never have noticed before, even if you've uh, noticed this story, you may not have put the two together. But we've talked about God's promises through, through all of this. Even back in chapter 1, had how God fulfilled his promise to Moses. He was still fulfilling the land promise that he made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Does God fulfill his promises? That's why the question mark is there. Absolutely. And this, with the people of uh, with the people of Gibeon going to be servants of Joshua and the children of Israel is a fulfillment in G of Genesis chapter 9 verses 23 through 27. You may recall in Genesis chapter 9 there that we're not much very very much fresh off the ark all the way in Genesis chapter 9 
and Noah and his sons are there as they have, you know, deboarded the ark. And it, we know there, beginning in verse number 20, that Noah becomes a farmer and plants a vineyard. He gets drunk off the wine, verse 21, and becomes uncovered. And Ham, the father of Canaan, Canaanites, sees his nakedness and goes and gets his brothers. But his brothers back up to him so they don't see his nakedness and cover him. And when Noah awakens in verse 24 from his drunken stupor, he makes a promise, a promise of God, of course it is. In verse 25, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. Blessed be the Lord, God, blessed be the, Lord the God of Shem, and may Canaan, a son of Shem, be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his serpent, uh, servant. Excuse me. And so this was a fulfillment, Noah's prediction of how Canaan would serve his brethren. And Shem in particular, this comes true. Canaanites, offspring of Canaan, served Shem because Shem was an Israelite, a descendant of Israel. And so, once again, we talk about the large promises, the land promise, the Messiah promise, all these big promises. That's true. But does God fulfill his little promises, maybe? Ones we don't, aren't familiar with? Absolutely, without a doubt, 100%. The second part of this lesson is entitled uh, Sun, Moon, and Hail. Of course, H-A-I-L there that's going to be a part of this story. But as we have kind of worked through the book of Joshua, we come to Joshua chapter 10. And it's probably one that you've at least heard of, even if you don't recall all the details. And that is that the sun, of course, is going to stand still. I added a new circle uh, and kind of circled down a little further to the bottom because, as we told you a moment ago, the children of Israel now have conquered the central portion. They have made a deal with the Gibeonites. They've conquered Ai, and they've conquered Jericho. They're ready to begin to move south. And in chapter 10, it tells us that it came to pass when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, once again, hears how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it, as he had done to Jericho and its king, so had he done to Ai and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, then we have somebody else who is fearing greatly. Because Gibeon was a great city. And so Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, is going to call together four other kings. And so next in your outline there, we see that five kings are going to unite together out of fear. Which is so amazing when we go back to what happened this morning, or as we mentioned this morning, I guess I should say, with Ai and with Achan, that Joshua and the people were so afraid, so worried they had been defeated and lost 36 men when they continue to see the great things that God has done. When they continue to see how great he is working and how when they are faithful and do what he says, then the promises are fulfilled. And so here we have another group of people who are fearful and they're going to band together so that they might try to destroy Israel. And so what they're going to do is they're going to, and by the way, that circle, I didn't, I didn't clarify there, but that circle has some of these kings named in it, Eglon or some of the cities, Debir, uh, some of these different ones that are mentioned there in verse number uh, three. That's where we're talking about. They're going to begin to march south and help take over some of these 
uh, areas. Now, what happens is, in verse number 5, at the very end, these five kings unite together, uh, ultimately kind of against Israel. But you see at the end of verse 5 that what they do is they go to Gibeon, and they make war against Gibeon. And so the men of Gibeon then are forced to call Joshua and say, Hey, remember that deal we made? Remember that treaty that you're going to protect us? We're calling you now. We need you to come and help us. So in verse number 7, Joshua, notice the word there is ascended. Ascended from Gilgal. He's back now over in the base camp. Ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. They march. Joshua says the words he's heard so many times from God. He, uh, here he is, the Lord saying it to him again. Do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. And so what's interesting with this, part of it is, in verse number 9, Joshua comes upon them suddenly, having marched all night. Now, if I'm not mistaken, and I hate to step out on that branch that I, I'm, I'm not 100% sure, I have to go look it up again, but as I was studying this, if I'm not mistaken, they did reference several miles, if not even up to 20 miles possibly, in the end that they had to march from Gilgal all the way over to that you know, kind of yellow circle area there. And maybe I'm getting that number wrong, and if so, I apologize. But notice, as I said in verse number 7, they ascended. Not only are they marching a long way, but they're going up. One person, one writer, I said, and I can't confirm it, of course, but said that if you were to be in the middle of the Grand Canyon, uh, not the middle and maybe like in the bottom, but on the, as you think about the walls of the Grand Canyon, so to speak, if you were to be in the middle of that and start making your way up to the top of the Grand Canyon again, that's the kind of ascent that we're talking about, that they did, and they did it all night. They came. They came to the assistance of the Gibeonites, and they're going to help. Verse 10, so then says, So the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to Beth Horon, and struck them down as far as Azekah and Makedah. And it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth Horon that the Lord cast down, and here's the hail part, large hailstones from heaven, and they died. And it says, there were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. By the way, who's winning the battle? It's God. What a reminder again to know that, you know what, we did something here. We did. We were a part of it. Our swords are involved. But at the same time, God is the one that is delivering as he said in verse 8, he's the one that is going to help us here and help us make this battle or, or fight this battle. And the Lord won it by casting down the hailstones from heaven. Now, the other part that is familiar, of course, as we said, is that in verse number 12, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand still over Gibeon. And moon in the valley of Ayalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies. And verse 13 says there at the end, So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And there's been no day like that before it or after it that the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought 
for Israel. Uh, Just another great reminder. And we would say here that Joshua asked or asks and God delivers. Another great reminder from what takes place here. And in one of the commentaries I was reading, there's all kind of discussion about, well, how do we know this happened? And, you know, what would have been in effect and all these things? Scripture tells us. And, of course, there's even a comment there in verse number 13. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? Another question. Uh, may take some more studying and discussion for another time there. But we know that this took place. And we know that the key to Israel's victory was that the Lord fought for Israel. And if I could ask you, as we did this morning, to kind of begin to close with a New Testament passage, go over in your Bible to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse number 31. You know it. I mean, we've, we've probably said it before. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? What a sobering reminder that when we are on the Lord's side, uh, you know, we think we we think about our kids sometimes. We see think we sing things like the Lord's army, and us adults say, "Oh, that's just a kid's song. I'm not going to sing that." You know, I don't I don't want to go through all those motions. But what a great reminder that when we're on the Lord's side, when we're in the Lord's army, when the key to us having a victory is that the Lord fights for us, then we know that we can accomplish anything. I guess, unfortunately, I don't even think that's a fair word. Unfortunately, for our human minds, that doesn't always equal uh, great wealth. It doesn't always equal that things go perfectly. But yet, if God is for us, who can be against us? Real quick, just to put kind of an end here to chapter 10, um, what we were talking about, if you still happen to be there. uh, The five kings of the Amorites are executed. They were put to death by Israel there, beginning in verse number 16. Uh, They had been in a cave. They went and fled and hid in a cave. Joshua and the people find them. Joshua says, bring them out. They do bring them out uh, among the people. And so he tells them in verse number 24, there's a bit of uh, um, the action to show what's really taking place as a symbol, I guess is the word I was looking for. Sorry about that. Uh, But as a symbol of triumph, the the captains of the kings of Israel, or excuse me, the captains of the army of Israel in verse number 24, put their feet on the necks of those kings as a symbol of triumph. They're going to then hang them from a tree, uh, kill them and hang them from a tree, verses 26 and 27. And Israel is now ready to move on to that conquest of the Southland that I mentioned to you that's about to take place. This was not going to be easy. In fact, it is in chapter 11, if you still have your Bible open to Joshua there, chapter 11 and verse 18 tells us, so Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. It was not easy, even though God won the battles. It was not overnight. In fact, the people needed to be prepared, and they were prepared to go to battle and to completely conquer the land. But there is great benefit for us, even as we look at these stories from the book of Joshua. Now, just to make mention, because we're almost going to be done with our study here, but once you hit chapter uh, 12 that we already looked at to begin, and you move through 16, 17, uh, 18, and some of those, there is a lot of the discussion of the land. But I would challenge you, if you enjoy listening to things, uh, enjoy listening to those videos, you can download them on your phone, uh, even if you'd like, or, or download them where you can listen to them without uh, uh, maybe having to have internet, if you can download them to something that you can listen to, but 
great lessons from some of those chapters that are included in that uh, PTP 365 that we appreciate our elders uh, supporting us by paying for that and having us uh, a subscription to that service. But you can continue to hear some good things from the rest of this. But God be willing, next week we'll come back uh, and kind of finish out with towards the end as Joshua gives some of his uh, finishing information in the book. But just a great study and hope that it's been beneficial for you as we've looked at some of these things. Uh, here we are, though. We live in the New Testament. We live under the New Covenant, and I guess I should say better there, better said. And that is God's simple plan of salvation that's made available to us. And as we conclude this lesson, as a matter of convenience, as we're assembled here and wanting to encourage one another, we'll sing a song of invitation to encourage you, if you need to be obedient to that simple plan of salvation, that you would consider doing that even today. Maybe you're here, and in this moment, you are a child of God, but you've wandered away. You've not been faithful. You've not been walking in the light. You can confess your sins, as God has instructed us to do, and repent and pray, even as Simon the Sorcerer did there in Acts chapter 8. You can be forgiven. You can begin this week, this Lord's Day, living anew, uh, being faithful to God, not having, carrying around this weight of sin in your life. Maybe you need the prayers of this church to encourage you with the struggles that you go through here in this life. We just appreciate the chance to extend heaven's invitation and to sing to encourage you, even now as we stand together and as we sing.